Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray. I'm president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, or VDP, and I'm delighted today uh, to be here again with Joel Kotkin. Joel is a writer. He's authored nine books, plus one more on the way. The New York Times calls him America's Uber geographer. Joel and I first got to know each other a little bit following Katrina when I was leading economic development in Louisiana. I think our first visit was probably about a decade ago. We've kept in touch here and there since then. And Joel is really one of the folks that people in the economic development space and localities, regions, and states look to for thoughts about where development is happening, where it's going, and some of the forces that are shaping it. We're going to be talking about a variety of interesting things in economic development today. We'll talk a little bit about Joel's book from a couple years back, The Human City. We'll talk a little bit about his next book. We'll talk about trends in economic development. Let, let's start there, Joel. There's a really interesting piece in the New York Times recently, maybe a couple different pieces, actually. One of them was authored by Amy Liu and one of her colleagues at the Brookings Institution. And they talked about sort of the diverging economic fortunes of regions in the United States. And essentially, something others have talked about as well, the big metros in general have been experiencing the most growth, mid-sized metros second, then rural areas that are connected to the metros, and then in sort of the detached rural localities. You've got this real separation or stratification of employment growth. Be curious about what your observations about that and how, in light of sort of the big forces that are driving those shifts, what you think communities, regions, and states could do to better position themselves for growth. This certainly was the case over the last 10 years. If you go back another 10 years, actually, smaller communities, particularly more mid-sized areas, were doing better. The new demographic data, which is probably the best thing to look at, is showing that growth is now stronger in mid-sized metropolitan areas than it is in the big ones. And then the big ones you have to separate out. I mean, Houston, Dallas, Orlando are doing really well. New York is kind of national average. LA is below national average. So it's not a single story. And I think that the migration trends and the job trends are not as clear and as hierarchical as most of the planners would like them to be. People aren't as stupid as they think they are. (laughs) One of the things I thought was really interesting in the book was there were many, many references to uh, Singapore. That was a place that really featured prominently. It's a market that I've long been impressed with from the perspective of their really transformational economic shift over the last few decades. When you look at, and you've been involved with Singapore for a very long time, I think going back to the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken, from an economic policy and economic development perspective, over that long arc of time, what have they really gotten right that so few places around the world have been able to achieve in terms of going from really a third world country to one of the top five or so wealthiest places in the world? Well, you have to start with Singapore with the old uh, saying that the threat of hanging tends to concentrate the mind. Singapore became independent under the worst of circumstances. It was ethnically diverse place that was poor. When the British pulled out, they were really lost. Malaysia essentially kicked them out. What I think is brilliant is they said, okay, what is it that we have? And what they really have is human capital, particularly Chinese human capital, which means tiger moms. The second thing is they had the fantastic strategic location. So obviously the port was going to be important. Businesses that depended on that strategic location. Then they started to move towards infrastructure like the airport and having a great airline. If you've flown Singapore Airlines, you would know what I'm talking about. And they managed their ethnic diversity really well. Not in a way that would be probably constitutional in this country, but for instance, they've tried to mix the various ethnic groups in housing. I look at it as a social democracy using capitalist methods. 
And that's really what I'd like to see more of in this country, but we're not doing that very well. When I travel the world and talk with executives of big, you know, multinational global companies and ask them in their travels what development agencies have impressed them the most, those that feel like they have enough context to answer the question, I would say at least 95% said the Singapore Economic Development Board. Well, also what they did is they had to deal with the fact they had very limited space. So, you know, when you say, well, you know, you might advocate dispersion in this country or Australia or, you know, a country with lots of land, Singapore had no choice. And so what they've done is they, instead of making people live in tiny spaces, they built public housing that they then allowed people to buy. And that public housing is considerably bigger. Like the average apartment in Singapore is much larger than in Hong Kong, for instance. So I think they've done a lot of really good thinking about things. And then they understood in the long run that their human capital was going to be the thing they had, and also a rule of law and predictability. There's a cleanliness, there's an efficiency that you get in Singapore. I mean, I think it's the best run city in the world. Part of that has to do with how they think about hiring and compensated their civil servants, right? Yeah, this is something I know Lee Kuan Yew has written about and I think is very evident. The, if you will, the Mandarin class in Singapore is very well compensated with the expectation that you're not going to need to take a bribe. You know, if you go to the exact opposite end, if you go to Mexico or India, where civil servants are paid very badly, well, of course they're going to take bribes. I mean, you know, you have to be a genius to figure this one out. So... I think that they made a very conscious decision that they were going to get really qualified, good people. I think Singapore really made an effort to look at their situation and to change over time. Like They realized initially manufacturing was something that they had a comparative advantage. Now, they knew that once China was opened up and, you know, Korea, Taiwan, they really couldn't compete except at the very high end. And so they moved more and more towards the sort of high-end electronics, a lot of biomedical services, tech, tech, finance. They had a really good strategic vision. But the thing that keeps it together and what we miss in this country is any sense that we want to develop an economy that has a place for the vast majority of people. You know, if you take a society like Silicon Valley, the very top has done really well and everyone else has done worse. Poverty in many ways is worse. Homelessness is worse. Housing affordability. Right. So, you, you know, you create wealth in the aggregate. But as I would put it, people don't live in the aggregate. They live their individual lives. And I know many, even many of my students here who come from the San Jose area who say, you know, it's actually been very tough for their families over the last 10 to 20 years. So I think that, you know, whereas San Jose had been a very middle-class place before. So I think that, that what one of the things that Lee Kuan Yew, again, out of necessity, understood is in order to have a workable social order, you have to have a certain degree of distribution of wealth that is tied to some idea of social justice. Now, they would never accept the idea that you shouldn't work. This would be completely culturally unacceptable. One of the things I've observed about Singapore that I think is really remarkable is they've combined two different development approaches into one. Where in the United States, for example, we could look to places like, let's say, Boston or Massachusetts, some of the really higher cost, more progressive states that put a tremendous amount of money into education and infrastructure, do very little, though, to attract business or to provide incentives and so forth. Singapore, and of course, other states, let's say some of the deep south states, perhaps right. haven't invested enough in infrastructure and education, but are very, very aggressive 
progressive about attracting industry. Singapore's actually done both, right? They've created really a, a world-class business climate with tremendous investments in infrastructure and human capital development. But they also, for strategic economic development opportunities, will make enormous investments and in incentives if they think a project is strategic to where they're trying to get. Yes. I see some analogies in the U.S., uh, particularly Texas. Take a look at Texas. Texas and North Carolina, those are two states I would immediately shout out. One, they've invested tremendously in their education systems. They still play the incentive game, but fundamentally they've done both. And in the case of Texas, done it on an enormous scale. I mean, I was just speaking at Texas Tech, which is in Lubbock, you know, it's a gigantic university churning out thousands of skilled engineers every year. We always talk about the University of Texas at Austin, but you have to look at A&M and Texas Tech as real drivers. What's interesting is California used to do that. California also had a very welcoming business climate at one time. Obviously not anymore. It's hard to believe now. Yeah, right? it is hard to believe. <laughs> but we also invested in our education system. And not just the University of California at Berkeley, but also the community colleges and the state colleges. Colleges. And I think that, but you have to have both. You know, if you just have an education industry, if you will, and you don't have places for those people to go, they leave. So That's right. Massachusetts, especially the highly educated, Massachusetts hemorrhages people. And now California, we are now educating people who go someplace else. When you look at the country overall, the higher educational attainment a person has, the higher their propensity to complete an interstate move, usually for a job opportunity, sometimes for better affordable you know, housing arrangements and so forth. The northeastern U.S. is the biggest donor region in terms of producing far more college graduates than they're actually able to retain. On the other hand, I forget how you sort of describe the geography, but basically Texas and some of the surrounding areas are the biggest recipient of that. So Texas every year, it's been a few years since I looked at this, but for all the new college-level jobs they have, they only produce about 70% of what they need, and they get the rest for free from all the other states well, <laughs> around the country. One, yeah, and one of the big things, obviously, in the case of Texas is all the southern states, like Louisiana, I mean, let me just put the do not go to a bar in Houston when LSU was playing. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, because the number of LSU graduates you run into, and obviously the same thing's true, you know, University of Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Oklahoma, they send their kids to Texas. This was the California I moved to in 1971, where everybody was from someplace else and nobody ever thought about leaving. It's kind of flipped a little bit. It's flipped quite a bit. And now if you don't have money, you don't have rich parents and you didn't rob a bank and you're under the age of 40, you're in trouble. The other thing Texas has, in addition to their sort of business climate and business bravado, if you will, is several big metros, right? And metros that have really a wide range of housing options, relatively affordable. You know, one of the things I noticed in Louisiana competing with Texas years ago was that college graduates in general make more money in bigger metros, even if the cost of living is about the same. And so you would actually have, let's say, for example, new law associates coming out of law school in Baton Rouge, same exact firm this is several years ago, would pay 95000 to a new LSU law graduate to work in their Baton Rouge office, 125000 for a new LSU law graduate to work in the Houston office. Same cost of living. See, what Texas is doing is it's providing opportunities, but without super high costs. The other thing is this whole debate about metros. Now, the, the research is pretty clear now that, generally speaking, being a bigger metro, at least to date, has been an advantage, but being dense is not an advantage. It's a great point. Before we leave the Singapore story, right. 
one thing you do touch on the, in the book is that while in so many ways Singapore has been a, a miracle of you know, economic transformation, but you do kind of hit on, I don't know if you use this word, but there's an argument that some make that Singapore maybe sort of lacks a soul, that it's certainly wealthy, that it's extremely well run, <laughs> but that maybe it's a little bit lacking of a unique identity. Do you think there's some truth to that? Oh, I think there's a lot of truth in that. A lot of the young Singaporeans feel that way. You know, some of them even have romantic notions going back to the old Malay villages. and there. But there is a sort of sense that the society is too regimented. Going and finding something that's unique, there's still a few areas where you can do that. You can feel that you're in this very unique, particularly this sort of straits Chinese culture, which is just a completely unique culture, unique cuisine, unique jewelry styles. I mean, just really quite amazing. One of the things that came up in my class here at Chapman was the loss of character, whether it was in the beach towns here in Southern California or in San Francisco or Seattle. Many of these places have lost a great deal of their uniqueness. And now, of course, as a native New Yorker, there are vast parts of Manhattan that are just unbelievably boring. I mean, they're less interesting than South Coast Plaza. Going back and reading some of the reviews that were largely very positive, one that stuck with me was in the Wall Street Journal. This was just a passage from that. Human City does provide a vision for legitimate and pragmatic urbanism that could and should become mainstream. Indeed, at the end of the book, Mr. Cochran seeks a constructive compromise with the anti-sprawl armies. His answer to, quote, how should we live, is amid a, quote, urban pluralism that encompasses the city center as well as close-in suburbs, new fringe developments. A lot of folks that are not as familiar with your work, I think, tend to think of you as sort of the America's champion for suburbs, and you are in a way. But I think what they miss is that you're not really an, an anti-city or even an anti-density person. It's more that you're essentially making the case that when we really consider the full range of family styles and different levels of income and all these things, that we need to have a diverse array of housing and neighborhood type environments from high density to suburban and, and others as well. In Houston, the young professional who wants to live, you know, where the spouse hunting is good and where the food is good and where they, you know, it's a little bit hipper. But then when they decide to get married and they want to buy a house, that same person and, you know, their spouse have lots of options that are affordable for them to go to. The problem we have here, most particularly in the Bay Area, but it's happening in other places too, is once you've gotten through the 20-something phase, there's no place to go. So if you look at the new surveys from Joint Venture Silicon Valley, 45% of all workers in their late 20s, early 30s are planning on leaving. That's not a very healthy environment. What they'll do is they'll keep recycling those, you know, that same group over and over again, but you can't get somebody who's gonna be there for 10, 15, 20 years. So that's why the kind of companies that leave places like California and New York are the companies that generally need somebody for the longer term. But if you're just using 20-somethings, you know, they're sort of like, you know, sort of like cannon fodder in the First World War, you know, just you throw them out there and they get massacred and then and then you send them, uh, then they go to the hospital. Yeah, you make a mistake if you design the whole solution around that one demographic. Because even they will change, right, in their, in their desires over time. Well, and what you'll see, I think, in, even in the current circumstances, Many of these companies, if they need mature management, will start moving more of their operations to more affordable cities. I mean, you think Apple's new campus at Williamson County outside mm -hmm. of Austin is about half the size of the spaceship in Cupertino. We see this here in, in Southern California. Look, Southern California, in my opinion, is the nicest place in the world to live, okay? I mean, if you have to make a living, I mean, obviously, you, you can go to Aspen, I suppose. If you look at it, the CEO who lives in Newport Beach is 
probably tempted to stay here. But one of them said to me, he said, well, yeah, but my production workers, if I pay them $18 an hour in Dallas or in Oklahoma City, they can live a decent life. Here, they're homeless, literally homeless. <laughs> right, right. One of the things you, you wrote about, I think, I think it was in The Human City, was how so many of the big engineering firms that had been in California have largely moved to Virginia and Texas right. over the years. Jacobs, Parsons, and others. The loss of this kind of company, as well as the McKessons and the Toyotas and the Nissans, those are companies that were anchors in their community. People worked there for 20, 30 years. A lot of people made, you know, 80 to 150K a year. They had some degree of stability. And losing those companies, and, and these companies, in my opinion, the Nissans and Toyotas, they should all be in Southern California. We're the car design capital of the world. You know, we have big Asian communities that have been here for a long time. We're the port where the stuff gets shipped in. I mean, it, we're the biggest market. But they're moving to Tennessee and to Texas for reasons that we didn't have to have. And what's shocking to me is how little concern there is on the part of the California government about these companies leaving. You know, when Toyota left, it was like nobody even paid attention. And, and then you get economic development officials say, well, we're at this higher stage of development and we don't need those kinds of things and those things are all going to leave us. Like, we'll just be all tech. Well, and we'll all be a bunch of IPOs and a bunch of you know 30-year-old obnoxious rich kids running around. I don't think you can base an economy on that. <laughs> what, um, before we leave the human city, what would you say, Joel, our listeners should take away as the top two or three lessons from that book? The first thing is, I think, what you mentioned about the idea of urban pluralism, that you have to be able to give people lots of options. So there have to be single-family neighborhoods. There have to be a higher-density downtown development. I, mean, I think in most places it's now well overbuilt, but you know, certainly you, you want to have that. And you want to have maybe that middle. I'll give you a good example is North Austin. The Domain is a kind of mini-city north part of Austin, which has hotels, it has apartments, you could walk everywhere, surrounded by single-family communities. So what happens is people who live in the single-family communities drive in to the domain where they want to restaurants, shops, shows, whatever, very much like the Woodlands. The Woodlands serves as a, sort of the metropolitan center for a huge part of the western part of Houston. And these have been successful. You know, Reston has been a, a success story. These areas that are kind of somewhat urban, somewhat suburban, but the problem is you now have a jihad going on on the part of the planners to wipe out all the single-family houses. And if you want to recruit people who are now being told that their area is no longer zoned single-family because the state of California has decided that you can build a fourplex next door, that's the f most serious discussion we've ever had about leaving. You touched on some of these themes in a piece I just saw. I was reading the latest uh, chief executive oh, magazine. Yeah which, of course, we were happy to see Virginia moving up as a best, one of the best states for business. You wrote a piece entitled, uh, After Amazon, What Happened in New York Isn't Just About New York. In that piece, there's a passage I'm just going to read. I think this was toward the end. This suggests a surprising future for the tech economy, particularly if the progressive tide continues to mount. An aging millennial population, growing dysfunction in centers like San Francisco, and political radicalism all work against business investment and the migration of educated middle-aged adults to cities. The battle days of urban decline may not return, but the bright, high-tech future predicted for our urban cores may be far less promising than widely heralded. You essentially make the case that the, the high-cost tech hubs like the Bay Area, like New York City, may continue to be strong, but that over time we may 
see a more broadly shared set of metros that attract tech jobs. You've already seen that to a large extent, in part because talented professionals eventually want to seek affordable housing where they can raise a family. By the way, I've seen this in my own life. My wife and I have considered moving to the Bay Area two different occasions. And of course, we're well-educated, lots of good options. But even with that, and even with great job opportunities, the cost is just incredible. So with all those things in mind, what do you think that secondary tech markets, sort of the, the I don't want to say small metros, but let's say the mid-sized metros that are experiencing growth in tech or that want to, what can they do to position themselves to really participate more broadly? Well, the first thing is to understand the typology. Really, San Francisco, Bay Area, and Seattle area are, and to a lesser extent, Boston, are in just a completely different phase than New York. New York, actually, its uh, tech LQ is just about the national average. It's big in an absolute sense, but it's not a high concentration. Not, not a high concentration. Same thing true with Los Angeles, which used to be the largest concentration of scientists and engineers in the world when I wrote my first book. Definitely not today. But then you have, where is the growth going? Now, there's still Silicon Valley in Seattle. You know, they've got the big companies there. They've got the, the capital networks, more private in Seattle, more venture in Northern California. But basically, you've got places like Orlando, Raleigh, Nashville. If you look at where the biggest growth is, if you look at the MC numbers in the computer-related and other high-end, that's where it's going. In the case of finance, lots of movement to Florida. So I think that what you're seeing is that these secondary markets, if they have the schools, the quality of life, and the cost. I remember when I, I worked in TV for a long time, and the cameraman would say to me, well, I just took a job with the Golf Channel, which I can't think of anything more boring. And he was going to be in the Golf Channel in Orlando. And he said the increase in his quality of life going from where he was living in the L.A. area to Orlando was just a completely different thing. I've also looked at some numbers on the amount of debt that the average Texan, for instance, has relative to the average California. It's completely different. We are really creating in these places also just an enormous amount of pressure on families and individuals. And I think it shows in how people act and how they talk. And very often I run into people and, they, you know, it's all about, well, we're going to go here in this number of years. Again, when I came to California in 1971, you'd never heard that. People were just moving here. People were moving here. Every once in a while, people would get fed up with the nuttiness. But basically, the advantages were so much greater than the disadvantages. And now you hear people say, oh yeah, I moved back to Michigan, or I moved back to Indiana, or I moved back to Texas. You know, we forget it wasn't that long ago that Texas was sending more people here than we were sending there. One of the common threads throughout all this, when you look at the challenges facing families in those big high-cost metros, is affordable housing, and the dominant right. challenge, we might say. What do you think is the right answer for localities, maybe even states, to try to address that issue in a meaningful way so that those bigger markets that do, in fact, have a lot of jobs that probably would have more jobs if they could address the affordability issue? What's the opportunity? There are several different things. One is, at the state level, is to look at some of your secondary and smaller cities and see if that may be a place where you could start to develop some sort of critical mass where the prices are lower. That's certainly one. But in terms of housing, A, what we, we just did a study for Center for Opportunity Urbanism on gentrification. We found huge amounts of undeveloped land in the cities themselves. If you go on the south side of Chicago and the west side of Chicago, it's like the prairie came back. I mean, it is empty. It is empty. It's really amazing. South Dallas, right near downtown, 160,000 acres of empty space. Parts of Los Angeles, particularly south and east Los Angeles, and even parts of Orange County, lots of land. So A, there's land to build, and I think 
although you certainly can do some density, you want to do a lot of single family. There's a great project in South Dallas called Jubilee Park where they're building single family homes for working class people, predominantly African American and Hispanic, for about 160000 I think that's a really good step. And then the huge play, which is going to be redundant retail. We're way over-retailed. And the beauty of building in a retail area is that you already have the electricity, you already have the water, you already have the roads, and you're not screwing with somebody's neighborhood. Right, because it wasn't a neighborhood there to begin with. Right. So let's say where I live, if the town center, you know, they decide to build 20 townhomes. All right, I could I could live with that. And maybe would even improve that community a little bit. But if you're going to go and destroy the single-family neighborhoods, then you're going to have some problems. I, I read a fascinating piece recently in the New York Times uh, from The Upshot that was looking at this really interesting trend. They analyzed uh, mortgage records across the country. This is for every locality, I think, in, in America, at least in the continental country. And what they found was that the localities, the, the areas, rather, the census tracts, they were experiencing significant shifts in their racial makeup. Mm-hmm that in general, the inner city areas that were predominantly African-American were becoming wider, and that the suburbs were actually you know, diversifying more, becoming you know, more minority-oriented. Really interesting, and you could see it in, in market after market after market. What, what do you think is driving Well, first of all, there are areas where that's true. Generally speaking, they would be areas where the housing stock had, had been pretty good, and the location's very good. It's limited in many places because of schools. You have to look at who it is. And if you take a look at the actual demographics, and we've done this pretty exclusively, the poverty levels are, concentrations of poverty are worse now than they were. So there are selected neighborhoods that are getting that way, that are in a sense gentrifying. But in many cases, the areas left behind are actually in worse shape. It is actually a very good point. If you look at the maps, there's a large portion of the maps that these sort of areas that are essentially where there was not significant racial change. And those tend to be areas that, again, you know, were probably upper middle class early suburbs from 1930 or 1950, depending on which city you're in, and are located nicely in, like if you take Charlotte, there's a big job center in downtown Charlotte. And if you get a kind of nice tree-lined neighborhood, that could be attractive. There's some wonderful ones in Dallas as well, and, and of course in Houston, and a lot of those areas. But you know, just because it's happening in places like Montrose or in some of the inside 610 areas, there are lots of areas where it's gotten, you know, considerably worse. And some cases actually depopulating. The south side of Chicago is depopulating. And lots of these areas actually have fewer people to start with now than they did 20 or 30 years ago. In some cases, it's dinks, double income, no children, or gay couples replacing what had been families of four or five. So even if you have a racial and income and education, in quote, improvement, at the same time, you have fewer people because you don't have the working class families. When I was at the AEI, I, I was with Rahm Emanuel on a panel, and he said one of the things he's concerned about is that vast part of Chicago, that single family working class neighborhoods, which is where the cops and the firefighters live. Those neighborhoods, I think, are important to see if you can preserve them, or else you end up in this sort of situation like, you know, classic case would be go to downtown Los Angeles, and there are these high-rises that are owned predominantly by overseas investors. They're, they're, as a friend called it, a vertical safe deposit box, and then surrounded by homeless people. And you see this all over California, incredibly expensive housing next to homeless people. We've talked mostly, I think, about metro areas today, right. at least to this point. I mean, even in the metros, largely looking at, you know, the sort of dense urban core, the largely suburban connected localities, but still in the metro area. What about the regions out there that are predominantly rural 
in character. Largely, they're experiencing decline, certainly a population, often of employment as well. Um, what can they be doing to position themselves for growth? Not every rural area, like every, every city, different. is the same. There, there seem to be several types of rural areas that are growing. Characteristics vary. They could be, let's say, like Midland, Odessa, Obviously, it's, it's energy. Like in Lubbock, where I was recently, it's Texas Tech, it, really a driver. There are other places where it's an amenity-based economy, like Missoula, Montana, places like that, where people with skills are moving, even though their businesses may be located in the metropolis, but they live there and they sort of use the internet. So there really, there is clearly a bit of a uh, demographic recovery, certainly in the micropolitan areas and to lesser extent in the really rural areas. One of the big factors, I think, um, that's going to change over the next few years, A, the aging boomers looking for less crowded, less, you know, people say, whenever I read these moronic stories, about, oh, the, the boomers are all going to move back to the city. I said, take a look at the census. Yes, very wealthy people will buy apartments in the city. And by the way, they spend most of their time on their ranch yeah. or, or in their condo in Florida. But if you look at the numbers where they're moving is to the exurbs and beyond. Like if you go in Charlotte, they would talk, I was there recently and the guys there were telling me, you know, what we get is we get a lot of the parents of workers from the Northeast who moved to Charlotte, their parents, but they're not moving into Charlotte per se, they're moving into the towns in South Carolina that are less expensive, maybe a little more charming. So we have that. And then you've got the family migration, the, the 30-somethings moving into these places. And so I think what's going to happen in rural America, if I was to project it, and I've been looking at this for 30 years, I think what you're going to see is some of these small towns are going to die, and some of them are really going to do well. When I looked at uh, Iowa, and western Iowa in particular, there were some communities that were growing and looking really good. They usually had a hospital or a community college, maybe one really good employer, and they were doing fine. But if you went to the places that were far away from the interstate, didn't have any plane service, no hospital, no community college, those places have a harder time. The other thing you're going to see is the growth in exurbia, in other words, the, the fringes of the metros. Of the metros. Mm -hmm. And that's where the most rapid growth takes place now. And a lot of it is in many areas, like in Des Moines, which is a very successful Midwest community. I asked the builders, I said, well, where are people going? They're moving out to rural towns 20 miles from Des Moines. 20 miles in Des Moines means 20 minutes. 20 miles here could be a lifetime. <laughs> and so, so what they're doing is they're moving into these towns. The same thing I saw in Fargo. People moving to these like little rural towns 10, 15 miles away, which have a town square, have good schools, and are very coherent communities. But on the other hand, and this is another aspect of this, Fargo, when I first started going there about 20, 25 years ago, downtown was a pit. There was nothing. It was crappy hotels and crappy restaurants and no you know, street scene at all. Right now, Fargo has wonderful boutique hotel, really good restaurants, ethnic diversity. As my friend Shaheen Sadeki, who develops, uh, he calls anti-malls, malls that are all locally owned businesses. And he said, every place is cool now. If you want your avocado toast you can get it pretty much anywhere it used to be if you wanted a good cup of coffee when you left new york you didn't get a good cup of coffee till you got to san francisco now you can get not i'm not talking about starbucks you can get a good cup of 
locally brewed coffee in almost every major city. Fargo has quite a few really good coffee shops. How important is broadband access to rural development? Well, I think that the internet is a potential game changer. You know, when I first started working in that part of the country, in Great Plains, the, uh, it was really funny, you know, you get a newspaper, it'd be like a three-day-old newspaper that all dog-eared, and if you want to watch television, there'd be two stations. I mean, and it was like blurry. And now you can go to a rural community you get the Wall Street Journal online at the same time of the New York Times online at the same time as the guy in New York gets it and you have you know cable television you can get the same crap there that you get here so I think that th- those cultural differences are less now when you're young and particularly if you're from an affluent background you know you still want the New York's and the LA's San Francisco's Chicago's but as you get older how often do you go to the theater? Like friends in North Dakota say, the Rolling Stones give concerts in Fargo. I mean, you know, in other words, the spread of the popular culture has changed enormously. And so places that you would have never thought of going to, you now go to. Joe, one of the questions I've been dying to ask you ever since I started playing this trip out here to California has to do with Richard Florida. Right. You know, you and Richard are... I think often considered to be kind of two sort of opposing points of view. But that's not quite right, is right. it? It's a little more nuanced than that. Be interested in um, where areas do you think you guys perhaps would even largely agree, and then where would you most strongly disagree? Well, I think Rich and I both, uh, and we've talked about this in person, both feel that the class divide is the biggest issue facing the country. You know, that's why I'm writing a book about feudalism. I mean, that's, I think, really critical. And I think we agree on that. I think he's softened his views on suburbs considerably. He's willing to look at other types of data. I think he recognizes that I'm not, you know, sort of the opponent of cities. I mean, after all, you know, my best-selling book was The History of Cities. So, I mean, I I am not anti-city. I grew up in New York. my, my father went to NYU. So I think we agree on that. You know, there are issues probably like transit and density where we're probably somewhat different, some of a differential. And I think Rich, to give him credit, I think took an enormous risk to his career by doing the, the new urban crisis and saying, you know what, this boom that I talked about, which was real, is ending. And that there are other challenges that may be uh, ahead. And I give him enormous amounts of credit for doing that. Joel, thanks again for making time to visit. It was great to catch up over breakfast. Have enjoyed so much our relationship over the last decade. Look forward to keeping in touch. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.